And in Luke chapter number 4, we have some profound truths given to us concerning how the devil tempts us and how we are to thwart that temptation, how we are to face it. And I just want to take a few moments tonight and say a few words about it. Luke chapter number 4 this evening, we'll begin in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. When the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you tonight. I thank you for loving me every day of my life that I've woken up, Lord. You've shown love and grace and compassion to me, and this day has been no different. I just want to praise you for your faithfulness and thankfulness tonight, Lord, or graciousness tonight, Lord. I want to be thankful. I want to have gratitude both in my heart and on my lips and in the way I live my life. I want to thank you for your goodness upon my life. I pray that you'd do a work in our hearts. I pray that you'd take your word, that you'd open it to us, that you would apply it in us, and that, Father, we would draw closer to you through it, Lord. We'll be sure to thank you for what we know you'll do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Luke chapter number 4, we have what is commonly known as the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And uh, I want to say a few words about how Satan tempts us, because there's two sides to what we can learn tonight. We can learn what Satan does when temptation happens. We can learn what we ought to do when temptation happens. Because we find in this passage not just profound truths, but practical truths as well. Uh, we might sum up Satan's tactics the way that John does in 1 John chapter number 2. I've preached from this passage before on this similar thought that he offered Christ the entire world. And something you'll find is that Satan is pretty reliable and he's pretty consistent in the way that he tempts folks. He's been singing the same song and he's been preaching the same sermon ever since Adam and Eve were tempted to eat of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. And John describes it to us in 1 John 2, 15 and 16 this way. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... Now, this doesn't mean that John's about to list every single thing that is existent in reality right now, but he's going to sum them up. And he's going to say that all that the world has to offer, and he says it this way, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes... And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 
So we might say this, that John sums up every temptation the world has to offer in these three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says this essentially, that there are temptations that are within us. They are the lust of the flesh, that the devil will appeal to our natural desires. Then there are lusts that are external, the lust of the eyes. You know, the Bible teaches us uh, that the eye gate is that through which we absorb the world around us. And the devil will make things look appealing that are outside of us, that are external of us. He'll put things in our path. And then there is the pride of life. And we might say this, he's appealing to that sense of station that each and every one of us have. Uh, We might say that if uh, we're talking about the lust of the flesh and we're saying how we feel about what we want, then when we describe the pride of life, we're describing how we feel about who we are, how the world should perceive us and should treat us. When Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, he presents, by the way, these same three thoughts. He says to them uh, that the uh, when when Eve noticed the fruit, she said about it that it was uh, fruit that was to be desired. Uh, it was good to look upon. Uh, she desired to eat it. It was uh, palatable to her. And that appealed to the lust of the flesh. And she said, uh, the Bible says that she saw it was good to look upon. It was an attractive fruit. And she also ate of it because it was a fruit to be desired to make one wise. She thought she ought to have the same level of knowledge that God had. So Satan's been singing this same song, playing this same note for many, many years. And when he comes to the Lord Jesus, he comes dealing in these same three categories. Now, before we get into those categories, let me just note three qualities about Satan's temptation. Number one, Satan is fearless in his temptation. You might say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, listen, if he would uh, stand toe-to-toe with the Son of God, then you better believe he's not afraid to tempt you either. Uh, there's no temptation, I'll remind you, taking us, but such as is common to man. And while the devil in many ways embodies the idea of respecting persons, when it comes to who he'll tempt, he is no respecter of persons. If he would tempt Jesus, then he'll try to tempt you as well. There's nothing about our lives that would suggest that Satan uh, trembles at our presence or our power. We'll see in a few moments how we are to make him flee through resisting him and reminding him of the truth of the Word of God. But just mark her down. There's going to come a time when Satan's going to tempt you. Uh, I would say this, that though Satan in his individual personhood may not tempt us, uh, that uh, one of Satan's, we might say, minions, one of Satan, uh, those that are under the power and influence of Satan, and the world system that is constructed under his power and influence will provide temptation in our lives every single day. So he is fearless. Let me say also he is ruthless in his temptation. Uh, whenever he comes to Christ, does not come to him when he's at a point of strength, bodily strength, but he comes to him when he's at a place of bodily weakness. Uh, the devil, he's underhanded, he's subtle, he's cunning, and he's not afraid to catch you. Uh, he don't play fair, amen? He don't play by the rules. He'll do everything he can to catch you at a disadvantage. He'll catch you in a moment of weakness. We find this is a common experience. And I see it all the time when folks get sick in body. Oftentimes, there's a spiritual battle that comes along with it. And isn't it funny, when you're sick, when you're hurting, when you don't feel well, the things that will come into your mind and the battles, the spiritual warfare that will take place. That's not by accident. Amen? He knows if he can get you at a time when you're weak, when you're frail, when you don't feel well, then he has a better chance of luring you in. And he is ruthless in the way that he tempts us. He will tempt our vulnerabilities. 
We all have vulnerabilities. We all have areas in life that we're stronger in and areas in life that we're weaker in. There are some things that might tempt you that might not tempt me. There may be things that tempt me that never tempt you. Whatever it is, whatever area of our life that we are vulnerable and susceptible in, uh, you mark her down. That's where Satan's going to target us. He is ruthless. He does not play by the rules. And then we'd say this, he is relentless. He doesn't give up. The Bible says if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. And that's true. He fled from the Lord Jesus. But notice how uh, the Holy Ghost ends this little narrative in verse 13. He says he departed from him. Notice these next three words. For a season. This was not, I believe, probably the first time Satan uh, had tried to tempt the Lord Jesus. And we know for sure it was not the last time that he had tried to tempt the Lord Jesus. And in your life as well, understand, there'll never be a time when you can say, well, I've reached the pinnacle, I have defeated and thwarted him in my own strength once for all, and I'm never going to have to face temptation again. As long as you walk in this body, as long as you walk in flesh and blood, you are going to face temptation. And I don't say that to discourage you, I say that to make you vigilant, amen? Uh, to make you understand that, listen, just because you had to fight him yesterday, that don't mean you won't have to fight him tomorrow. And there can't be a day goes by that you say, well, he's going to leave me alone now and I'll be all right. No, he is relentless in the way that he tempts us. Well, let's look at the three ways that he tried to tempt the Lord Jesus. Let's see what we can learn about how he tries to tempt us. The first is found in verses 2, 3, and 4. The Bible says at the end of verse 2, And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Tactic number one that he used was he appealed to the lust of the flesh. Now, I'm going to remind you before we even move any further that the things that Satan tempted Christ to do were not intrinsically sinful in and of themselves. In the first temptation, he's tempting him to eat. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with eating. Amen. Somebody ought to, give, somebody ought to take a lap on that, in fact. Nothing wrong with eating. In fact, we'll see time and time again Christ eating during his earthly ministry. It wasn't wrong in and of itself. And then he tempts Christ with the idea of power and authority. And there's nothing wrong with power and authority, especially when we're talking about the Son of God. In fact, the Bible says that all power belongeth unto Him. And then He tempts Him with revealing Himself to be the Son of God before the world. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, In fact, the gospel is based around the reality that Jesus Christ, uh, the Nazarene, the, the Galilean, that He was not just a prophet or a preacher or a teacher, but He was very God in the flesh. None of these things are wrong intrinsically. And that's important for you to understand because I think when we think of Satan coming and tempting us, we always think of him coming and tempting us with things that are, that are uh, on the face of them blatantly sinful. In other words, he's going to come and tempt us with a, an illicit relationship or he's going to tempt us with stealing. He's going to tempt us with lying. And it's true that he does tempt us with those things, but that's not the limit of his temptation. Sometimes when he comes and tempts us, he tempts us with doing something that is not wrong, but doing it in the wrong way or at the wrong time. And that's what he's doing with the Lord Jesus. Now, Christ has been 40 days in the wilderness. He's been fasting. He's not eating anything. No doubt he was hungry. Uh, one commentator said this, that if the Mount of Transfiguration presents to us the most human expression of Christ's divinity, 
uh, then the, uh, tr- the temptation in Luke 4 presents to us the most divine expression of Christ's humanity. Christ was both 100% man and 100% God at the same time. You might say, preacher, that math don't add up. Well, listen, God's the one that set the principles of mathematics in order. If He wants to circumvent them, He can do it. Amen. But one of the things that we learn is that He was 100% God, 100% man. And both of those things were co-equally true. And we focus on the fact that He was 100% God. And right, we should. Uh, There's no question that the thing that's in dispute today in the world arena of secular thought is whether He was God. And I think that we ought to say unashamedly that Jesus Christ is uh, not only the Son of God, but He's also God the Son. Amen? But let us never forget that while He walked this earth, He also was human. And He was not sinful. He did not commit sin. He did not have a sin nature. But listen, not everything that the human body experiences is the direct result of sin. The human experience involves fatigue and hunger and weakness and weariness. And Christ displayed all these things in His earthly ministry, though He had never sinned. The Bible said He was separate from sinners, that in Him was no sin. He knew no sin and He did no sin. And so I say all that to say this. At the end of 40 days, Christ, just like you or me, He was hungry. He longed for something to feed his body, uh, physically speaking. And so the Lord, or or Satan, takes advantage of this. And he comes and he asks him to do this in verse 3. If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Now, as we frame this in terms of what is taking uh, taking place spiritually speaking, I would remind you that though he was weak physically, he was mighty spiritually speaking. I don't have time to unpack the whole notion of what fasting is and does. But fasting in the Bible is always associated with prayer. And the other gospel writers tell us that uh, the Lord Jesus, He went in the strength of the Spirit was how He was operating at the end of 40 days. Uh, He had achieved uh, that uh, spiritual strength and that spiritual vigor through spending time in prayer with His heavenly Father, uh, through abstaining from uh, physical food. So here's what Satan was trying to get him to do. Mark her down. He was trying to get uh, get him to trade the spiritual for the physical. In other words, he had been being fed spiritual food in the wilderness, and it had sustained him. And Satan was trying to get him to trade that spiritual strength for physical strength. Now, again, I would remind you there's nothing wrong with physical strength. When you see someone like me standing up here, just a specimen of fitness and strength and health and beauty, I'd be hypocritical to suggest there's something wrong with physical strength. Nothing wrong with physical strength. But listen, there is something wrong with placing physical well-being above spiritual well-being. And this is what he was trying to get him to do. And in the broader scheme of things, we might suggest this, that Satan's chief tactic is to get us to value that which is physical above that which is spiritual. We find this to be clearly set forth in the exchange between Jacob and Esau. Esau comes in from the field and he's hungry. And he, he's really, he, you could tell he was a man because of the way he uh, explained his hunger. He said, I'm at the point of death. Amen. You men know what that feels like, right? Come in. I ain't just hungry. I'm at the point of death. I need something to eat. And so that's what Esau says. And Jacob says, well, hey, I got a pot of lentils cooking here. And if you want some for the right price, you can have some. So Esau says, well, what do you want? He says, I want your birthright. 
And Jacob says, or Esau says, well, I'm not using it right now, so I'll just trade it. And so he sells his spiritual birthright for a physical bowl of soup. The Bible says in Hebrews that Esau despised his birthright. That doesn't mean that he hated his birthright, but he mean, it means that he treated it of low value in the grand scheme of things. And this is what Satan's trying to get Christ to do. And even tonight, that's what Satan is trying to get you and I to do. Now, let me tell you something. I, and I, I promise you, I didn't get up here to fuss to you about other people or about those that are not here tonight. I know that's a futile waste of time and I'm not interested in doing it. But I will remind you that every one of you made a decision before you came to the house of God tonight. Every one of you that came to the house of God, I guarantee you, you've worked all day, you're tired. You might have scarfed down a little bit of supper before you got here, but you probably didn't sit back and undo your belt and really embellish and relish the food that was sitting before you. But you made a choice before you came tonight, and this was your decision. You said, if I go to the house of God, I'll get spiritual food. I can stay at the house, and I can get physical food. If I go to the house of God, I'll get spiritual rest. I could stay at my house, and I could get physical rest. You made the choice to prioritize your spiritual well-being above your physical comfort, and you came to the house of God to get fed at the table of God. There's other folks that did not choose that same choice. And there's some folks wish more than anything they could be here tonight, and they're not able to be. I'm aware of that. There's some folks that are sick, and I don't want them here tonight. Amen. I want them at home getting better. But I am saying this, that that choice is made time and again in a a microcosmic way everywhere we turn, day by day by day. What is our priority? Well, notice how Christ answers him. He says in verse number 4, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, something you have to understand about Christ's answers here. One, he knows more about the Bible than you or I. Let me say this. The second thing we need to understand is the devil probably knows more about the Bible than you and I as well. James says about the devils that they uh, believe and tremble. They know the Word of God. And so there was a context to what he was saying here. Listen to what he's quoting from in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Uh, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel on behalf of God. And so this is God's Word to them. And the Lord says to Israel, All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. Now shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and approve thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Now, what was Christ talking about here? He was saying this to Satan. Never forget that the same God that meets our spiritual needs also meets our physical needs. When we place the spiritual need above the physical need, God knows the physical need, and when the time comes that it's necessary, He's full well able to meet our physical or temporal need. In other words, when we place the spiritual above the physical, uh, what we're doing is entrusting God that He will meet our needs according to His will and His desire. 
you'll be amazed how God will use your spiritual needs being met to meet your physical needs. You'll also be amazed how oftentimes God will meet a physical need and in that same uh, activity and action He'll meet a spiritual need. You see this on full display, by the way, in the ministry of Jesus Christ when He walked this earth. Time and again, and we preached a little bit on Sunday morning about uh, Jairus' daughter, uh, but we also preached in that same uh, breath and in that same story about the woman with the issue of blood. She comes to Jesus, reaches out, touches the hem of His garment, and her physical ailment is a immediately healed. But before Christ lets her walk away, he turns around, he speaks to her, he has her confess what she's done, and then he says to her, daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole, go in peace. He's not talking about her physical need when he says thy faith hath made thee whole. He's talking about her spiritual need. What he's saying is, I not only met your physical need, I met your spiritual need. Because you came and sought me, you go away not just healed, but forgiven as well. What Satan wants us to do is to spend all of our time focused on our physical needs, be they money, be they provision, be they health, be they whatever they are, keep us focused on our physical needs and desires to keep us from focusing on the spiritual needs that we have in our life. And Christ reminds him of God's provision that if we'll do as he had said in Matthew chapter 6, if we'll seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. What are all those things? He had just got through saying, hey, take no thought for your food. Take no thought for your raiment. Take no thought for your physical well-being. That's not saying that God's calling us to a life of recklessness or a life of unhealthiness. But he's saying this, get your focus on spiritual things and I I'll tend to the physical things. What he tries to do is get us to trade that which is spiritual for that which is physical. And he appeals to that sense of physical need that we have. Uh, Just like us men when we come into the house and we're hungry and we say, I'm about to die, just like Esau did. Here's the truth. Our flesh feels that way, but our spiritual man doesn't. That's our flesh complaining. That's our flesh desiring. That's our flesh making its needs known. You know what we find is this, that inasmuch as the old man diminishes in priority and in power and in influence, the new man advances in influence and power and in health. So here's what I'm saying. Listen, I'm not, you can tell looking at me I ain't missed too many meals. And I'm not saying that we need to somehow uh, embrace a life of, of uh, monastic self-denial. But I am saying this, that if we'll place the spiritual thing as the priority in our life, we'll not do without. God will meet our physical needs as well. But now, if we place the physical desire or need in our life as the preeminent thing, then the spiritual need and desire will suffer for it. Get your priorities straight. Get, Get the ox before the cart. Place your priority on spiritual things, and God will meet the physical. Now, notice the second temptation, or we might say tactic, that Satan uses. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. What does that mean? In other words, he didn't just show him all the kingdoms that existed at that time, but he showed him every kingdom in this world that had been, that was, that would ever be. The Bible says this, Verse 6, And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, 
all shall be thine. In tactic number two, he targets the lust of the eyes. So when he speaks of the lust of the flesh, we're talking about that internal desire that we have that's birthed within us. But now he shows him something through the eye gate that's external. He shows him all the power, all the authority, all the influence that the world has to offer. And he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, then all these will be thine. Now, did Satan, first off, we might ask this question, does Satan have the authority to do this? He said to him, all this is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. Well, the Bible does say in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this world. There's no question that he is pulling strings in this world. And there is no question, we see this evidenced by the truth of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that when he wants to, he can place someone in an opportune place of power and of influence. Here's the problem. Uh, Satan can give you real power, he can give you substantive power, but he can only give you temporary power. Because at the end of the day, he may be the God of this world, but we worship the God of the universe. And he may have a probationary influence in this world, a temporal influence, but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so here's what Satan was trying to get him to do. By appealing to him with things that were outside of the body, by exposing things to the eye gate and trying to allure him with them, he was trying to get him to trade the eternal for the temporal, or we might say temporary. In other words, he was trying to get him to give up that which God would give him, and we'll say a word about that here in just a moment, for that which he could offer him. And can I just say this to you tonight? The world can only give you temporary satisfaction, temporary pleasures, temporary fulfillment, temporary happiness. The world cannot give you anything lasting because the world itself is not lasting. Listen to how John sums up all the world can give. You know, we read that at the beginning. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then he says this in verse 17, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof. There's nothing the devil can give you except heartache that is uh, eternal. He can only give you temporary things except in the way of wasted opportunities and sorrowful lives. He cannot give you anything lasting. And so what does Christ do? And I might say this. There's a twofold answer that Christ gives him. There's a phrase that Christ uses, and we'll say a word about it here in a moment, that we sort of use, uh, we observe it kind of like it's just a turn of phrase, but it's not. Christ only uses it twice in Scripture. They have very distinct applications. But first I want you to notice the overall sentiment that Christ answers him with. He says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He's quoting again from the book of Deuteronomy, but this time in chapter number 6, verses 13 through 15, read this way. Listen carefully. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and serve Him, and shalt swear by His name. Ye shall not go after other gods of the gods of the people which are round about you. Remember, we're talking about the lust of the eyes, that which is seen, that which is observed. We're not talking about the desires we have that are internally birthed, but we're talking about the influence of the world around us that is pressing upon us, that is causing us or attempting to cause us to conform to the world 
world that is around us. He says, you shall not go after other gods or the gods of the people which are around about you. For the Lord thy God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord thy God be kindled against thee and destroy thee from off the face of the earth. There's something that's implied in what's said here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. God is speaking to the children of Israel and He says to them this, Listen, don't turn after other gods, because if you turn after other gods, it'll kindle my wrath and I'll destroy thee from off the face of the earth. Here is the thing that is implied. If those gods were real gods, they could protect them. But because those gods are false gods... And if the true God of heaven is angered, those gods would be impotent to protect them from the wrath of the true God of glory. Here's what Christ is pointing to. First, He reminds Satan of God's preeminence. That God is God. And there's none other God beside Him. He is the only God. And then I would say this... (laughs) Inasmuch as we read this passage, I want to say a word about the use of that word jealous. Uh, You know, I I found this. When you're an expository preacher and you don't get up and preach these cute messages that are issues related, uh, then whenever you walk by something in a passage, you better pick it up and throw it then because you might not be back around there for a while. So I want to say a word about the use of that word jealous there. Uh, We understand that word jealous in being negative. And it can be. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that jealousy is cruel as the grave. And certainly jealousy, when it's in the hands of sin-fallen man, can be wielded by Satan uh, for destructive purposes. But God doesn't do anything sinful. God doesn't do anything wrong. And so we have to understand there's a thing that uh, theologians call anthropomorphism when uh, human or physical or temporary qualities or characteristics are attributed to God. And whenever the Bible does this, in other words, jealousy is a human construct and it's applied to the God of heaven, we have to understand that we have to interpret that in light of God's other uh, qualities and His nature. God is holy. God is not sinful. God is love. God is compassion. Uh, God is upright. God is righteous. So if God is jealous, then it is a loving, compassionate, upright, holy jealousy that God has. And I've described it this way. If someone was to break into your home and uh, you uh, woke up in the middle of the night and went out there and you caught them breaking into your home and they had your flat screen TV in their arms, they're walking out with it, and you said to them, Hey, whoa, wait a minute, where are you going? Put that down, that's my TV, not yours. And they turned and looked at you and said, Well, quit being so jealous and selfish over it. You'd say, Excuse me? I don't know who you think you are. But that TV is my TV, not yours, and I have every right to it. You see, the fundamental fundamental principle behind the negative connotations of jealousy is the notion of independence of self. That you don't own that individual, therefore you have no right to behave in that manner. Well, i got news for you. God owns everybody. And so God has every right to be jealous over you and me. We are not only His child, we are His creation. And as our Creator, He has the right of life and possession over you and I. So don't get hung up on that word jealousy. God can be jealous because God is jealous in a righteous sense. He's not jealous in the way that man is jealous. So uh, the Lord looks at Satan. He says, I want to remind you, you may be the God of this world, but God, my Father, is the God of glory. He's the God of the universe. He's the God of all creation. He is God Almighty and He trumps you. 
I would just remind you that when Satan comes to us and tries to make us promises, and he does, he does. By the way, this is the only temptation that he offers where he makes a promise. Do you notice that? When he makes the first temptation, he doesn't say anything about the consequences. He just says, hey, you're hungry? Turn these stones into bread. He doesn't say he's going to do anything for Christ. He just says, do this. And he's assuming and implying that uh, the consequence and the, the benefit of it is contained within it. By the same token, the one we'll look at here in a moment, he doesn't make any promises to him. He just says, this is what the Word of God says. And if you respond in this way, and he implies and leaves it to Christ to understand and imply what the consequence was. But with the second temptation, he says, you do this, I'll give you this. And Christ looks at him and says, that ain't yours to give. You may own it for now, but you don't own it eternally because God is the God of glory and it belongs to Him. And it's not yours eternally speaking to give. I could, I could enjoy it temporally, but I could not enjoy it eternally. And all that the world has to offer you, all, all of its popularity, all of its power, all of its prosperity, all that the world can give you, it can only give it to you for a moment in time. Can't give it to you eternally. But then there's something else that Christ says here that I think is is worth noticing. Before he makes that statement, he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. There's only two times in the Word of God, two separate occasions in the Word of God, where Christ uses this rebuke. Once here, and once when He's talking to Peter. When Peter uh, tells the Lord Jesus, when Christ says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to rise again, and Peter says, be it far from thee. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to let that happen. And he looks at Peter and he says, uh, get thee behind me, Satan, thou savorest not the things of God, but the things that be of man. And so when he uses this rebuke, here's what he's implying. He's saying, you're standing in the way of the cross. You don't belong there. So get behind me, because I have a destiny to fulfill. But now there's something I think that we might suggest too by this statement. When he says, get thee behind me, listen, listen to this passage. I just want you to consider this for a moment. In Revelation 11:15. now remember, Satan has just said, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan. Listen to what it says in Revelation 11:15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, all that Satan had just showed Christ in Revelation 11, they say the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. I think he also reminds him of God's promise. And I think what he's saying is this, Satan, the path that lays ahead of me is the path of the cross. And you need to get behind me, because when it comes to who's going to reign, I'm the next in line, not you. Those kingdoms are my kingdoms already. They belong to me. But they belong to me not through the path of compromise, but through the path of the cross. And get out of my way, because I'm headed for the throne of those kingdoms anyway. He appeals to him through the lust of the eyes. I want to give you one more, and I'll be done tonight. Look what it says in verse number 9. The Bible says, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So Satan, he's wised up a little bit. He said, all right, if we're going to quote Scripture, I'll quote Scripture too. And he does. He quotes from the 91st Psalm. 
Now, the reason this has impact is because the 91st Psalm is a messianic psalm. What does that mean? The messianic psalms were psalms that were written that had an application to the life of David. At least most of them do in some way. But they had a greater application as a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, uh, Psalms uh, chapter number 22, when David begins by saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God hadn't forsook David, but he was looking prophetically to that moment on the cross when Christ himself would quote those words, and he would say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalms 22 is a Messianic Psalm. Well, Psalms 91 is as well. And it details God's watch care over His Messiah. Listen to the passage that Satan quoted the Lord Jesus. Verse number 10 of the 91st Psalm, it says, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, here's what he was trying to convey to uh, the Lord Jesus. He was saying, you claim to be the Messiah. You claim to be the Son of God. And right you are. For Satan himself knew who Christ was. And he says, right you are that you're the Son of God. But this world doesn't believe you. If you'll take yourself up to the pinnacle of the temple. Why the temple, by the way? There were higher places than the pinnacle of the temple. He says the pinnacle of the temple because the very people that rejected him were around that temple courtyard. He was saying, you know, you could go right now and cast yourself down and fulfill that messianic prophecy. And you could prove to all those people that you are who you say you are, that you are the Son of God. I wrote it in a couple ways. I want to share them with you. His third tactic appeals to the pride of life, the position and station that we desire Uh, Not as much what we think of the world, but what the world thinks of us. And he's trying to get Christ to trade the providential for the prideful. We might say it this way. He wants him to trade the sovereign will for the self-will. Now, there's no question that Christ wanted the world to know he was the Son of God. Uh, As we said at the beginning of the message, the entire gospel is centered around the propagation and proclamation of the truth that Christ is not just God's man, but He's God's Son, and He's God in the flesh. Nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. The path that Satan laid out was not the path that God laid out. You know, I found this to be true in life. The path that Satan lays out is never the path that God laid out. And the path that God lays out is not in keeping with the path that Satan desires for you. Uh, listen, we've got to make a choice whose path we're going to walk on. And what he's saying is this. God's desire is that you be revealed through the cross. But I, I tempt you instead to reveal yourself through your own ability and strength. You know, Satan, if he can destroy our lives, one of the things that's vital to his plan is that he get us to do our own thing and go our own way. And you know, the funny thing is this. The end result, at least Satan's understanding of it, of his plan and God's plan, looked identical. Reminds me of Moses. You know, we don't know when Moses was uh, was shown and told that he would be uh, Israel's deliverer. But we do understand it didn't happen at the burning bush. Satan knew long before, in fact, 40 years earlier when he was in Egypt, he knew and understood he would be the one that would deliver the children of Israel out of bondage. You know how we know this? Because Stephen reveals it to us in Acts chapter number 7. That whenever Moses slew that Egyptian that was assaulting a Hebrew... 
And uh, the next day he goes and there's a dispute between two Hebrews and he tries to resolve that. And they turn and they said, who makes you a ruler and a master over us? Are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? And he fled in fear. The Bible says that he what not. That means he didn't understand how that his brethren did not know he would lead them out by his hand. Moses knew, even in Egypt, even when he was a young man, that he was going to be uh, the deliverer of the children of Israel. But here's the problem. There was a destination. God wanted it for him. Moses wanted it for him. And even the devil wanted it for him to some extent. But Moses tried to get it through his own strength and in his own way instead of yielding and submitting to the plan and process of God. Satan doesn't have to get us to change our end desire. He just has to get us to change our means of getting there. Are we going to try to accomplish the things in life that we desire through submission to God's leading or through the strength of our own will? And this is what Satan was trying to get Christ to do. Trade the providential for the prideful. Show all those people who you really are and trade the sovereign will for the self-will. Don't do it by means of Calvary. That'll be painful. That'll be shameful. Hey, listen, Christ didn't enjoy Calvary. The Bible says He endured the cross, despising the shame. It wasn't a pleasant thing for Christ to be crucified, but it was the will of God. It was the way of God, and He was surrendered unto it. The Bible says, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience through the things which he suffered. That doesn't mean he ever had a rebellious or disobedient notion or thought, but it means this, that he submitted himself unto the will of his Father for you and I. So Christ answers him, and he answers him in this way. He says in verse 12, And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But I think what's really interesting, rather than what Christ didn't quote in the context, I think what's real interesting, if you look at what Satan didn't quote. In the 91st Psalm, Satan, and you know, I found this, that if you want want to destroy the message of the Word of God, uh, the, the way that the devil does it is not by putting stuff in, it's by taking stuff out. Hey, listen, if Satan put an 11th commandment in the Bible, uh, well, there is an 11th commandment, we understand. But if he went in and he put uh, five more commandments in Exodus chapter 20, you'd probably notice that. You'd probably read your Bible and say, hey, this ain't never been in here before. Something's wrong here. No, he's more cunning than that. Usually what he does is he takes things out of the Word of God and things that you may never even notice. That's why there's so many things missing from these new Bibles concerning his divinity and his lordship and the blood. Satan's wise. He's cunning. He's subtle. He knows what he's doing. Uh, He has an earthly, sensual wisdom, and he knows what he's trying to do. And in the same way, when he quotes this 91st Psalm, he leaves things off at a pretty convenient place. Let me read it to you with the place that he left out. Verse 10, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. We read that a second ago, didn't we? For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. That's where he left off. And I can kind of see why when I read verse 13. Verse 13 says, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. 
Hey, he didn't want to quote verse 13. Because we know from reading our Bible, Peter tells us that Satan is a roaring lion. The book of Genesis tells us that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. And in the book of Revelation, the devil is called the great dragon. He didn't want to read verse 13 because verse 13 had his name, had his number, and rung his bell. And that was Christ telling us that the Messiah would not only go to the cross, but he would raise victorious over death and hell and the devil. You know what he did when he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God? Satan was saying, Why don't you prove that you're the Messiah? And Christ said, You better be careful what you ask for. You better be careful what you ask for. Because my life doesn't end with the cross. Hey, you think if you get me to the cross, you've got me beat. Uh, But listen, the cross is not the end. The crown is the end. I'm coming out the other side of death. I'm raising in power and in glory. And when I do, I'll defeat him that has the power of death and hell. That is the devil. And what he's saying is this. He reminds him of God's plan. Of God's plan. He reminds Satan exactly where he fits in God's plan. (laughs) And what he reminds him of is this. That God's plan is always right. God's will is always best. And at the end of the day, listen, when Satan comes to you, you've heard this a hundred times, I know you have, but when he comes and reminds you of your past and tries to get you to buck God's plan, just remind him of his future. Because at the end of the day, God has a plan, and his plan is perfect, and his plan is right. And, And I hate to tell him this, but for old Satan, things don't work out too well for him in God's plan. Never forget that God's plan is best. He'll come to you and try to get you to trade the sovereign will for self-will. When that happens, just remind Satan that the sovereign will is the best will, that God's way is the best way, and that Satan's desire for your life is not what's best, but that God always desires the best for his children.